live from Studio G in Minnetonka, Minnesota. This is Your Greenhouse Home, the podcast. And I am your host, Jesse, lover of all things green. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Today, my guest is John, our IPM manager here at Tonkydale Greenhouse. Remember, we're a retail garden center located in Minnetonka, Minnesota. John is in charge of all things IPM. He has a really solid science-based background and so much knowledge to share with us. We're going to connect the dots on how to prevent and treat any kind of pest problems you might be having with indoor plants. So John, how are you today? I'm well. It's nice and warm. Sun's out, so good February day. Good February day. Amazing. So John, as our IPM manager, what is IPM? What does IPM mean? Yeah, the textbook definition for IPM is integrated pest management. Kind of the the simplest way I like to call it is is intelligent pest management because uh, earlier kind of in in early in the 20th century, pest management was simply just spray pesticide until you didn't have pests, uh, and there wasn't a lot of insight into it. Whereas as the years moved on and we became more environmentally aware, um, there was this realization that we needed to know more about the pests, more about the conditions in which they'd arise, and then when to treat and how to treat. Uh, So it's kind of taking all of the knowledge we've learned through, you know, our agricultural history and using that to kind of control pests without with minimal chemical controls um, and with, you know, the environment and human safety in mind. Amazing. It's really cool to hear that there is some history involved in a practice that is so very common in greenhouses today. Uh, so with your working knowledge of IPM or integrated pest management, how can some of the pillars or principles of IPM be applied to plant people that are caring for indoor plants inside their home? Yeah, you know, it, IPM is typically associated with, you know, agriculture or, or nursery production, but actually a lot of the principles really are, are universal to to just treating any disorders you have in your plants. And kind of the first thing that I I look at when either, I, we, you know, we, sometimes we'll get emails with people asking what's wrong with their plant or people will bring them in. And sort of what I start with is a little bit of background. So just knowing, obviously, what plant it is, um, what are its conditions, you know, because a lot of the time, you know, you may have yellowing leaves and, and that's, that's sort of the, the greenhouse common problem, but it can be anything from overwatering, sometimes underwatering. It, it can be spider mites, which is what sometimes people think that it is, but just knowing the uh, the circumstances that sort of brought the plant here, if you will, a little bit like a doctor's visit, the background. Doctor's visit. That's kind of how I like to look at it, instead of just simply going to what we think the problem is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and kind of on that, if we do identify that it is a pest, um, we, we have to ideally identify, you know, what the pest is. A lot of times people will bring plants in and, um, you know, you can actually find spider mites or thrips or mealybugs on the plant and that makes it easy. Um, but sometimes, you know, they'll just have like a chewed leaf or uh, some damaged uh, flower buds and you have to do a little bit of digging to think of, okay, what what are the insects, the pests that could have caused this? And sometimes it's not just insects, it could be a, a fungus or a bacteria. And then from there, we narrow down, okay, uh, how, how bad is the problem? You know, what, at what life stage is the insect? Um, and then what are our solutions? And then sometimes that can be chemicals. Sometimes that can simply be pruning. A lot of the time, and, and it's hard to say for some maybe plant parents, but it's tossing the plant. Um, but it's 
different solutions, but just the more information we have, the more of an intelligent, sort of intelligent pest management response we can give. Sure, sure. So uh, I kind of, when you mentioned a doctor's visit, sometimes when you're troubleshooting for a customer or a guest who has a plant problem, I've used the analogy before, like if you were to go to the doctor and say, hey, I have a stomach ache, you know, a doctor is not going to be able to diagnose that right off the bat. Just like you're saying, hey, I have a yellow leaf. You need more background information. Like, what did you eat? Uh, you know, do you have a temperature? Uh, you know, you got to do a little bit more uh, question and answer to get to uh, the place you need to be. Exactly, yes. <laughs> and, you know, it, it, sometimes it's very obvious things, you know, like um, the plant is, is sitting in mud, so it's got root rot or something. But other times it's it's less conspicuous answers. You know, there are a, a quite a good number of mite species out there, um, and their damage tends to look very similar. And at that point you then have to look at the, the physical differences of the mites if you can find them to sort of narrow down what you're looking at. So sometimes it's easy, mm-hmm. um, but other times you do have to do a little bit of digging and then kind of some trial and error as well. Right, and it's interesting too because sometimes pest damage can present uh, as like overwatering, underwatering, uh, fertility issues, um, you know, cultural damage, other things like that too. Mm-hmm. So really knowing your pests and knowing their life cycles can kind of help narrow down what the problem is. And so, uh, you know, part of that integrated pest management strategy is really just treating what you have versus just spraying it. spraying for everything because you, you know or think something's there. I think uh, when I think of integrated pest management, the first thing I usually think of is scouting. So scouting is um, actively looking and interacting with the plant to see like changes over time. So you can see visibly see if there is insect pressure and what that might look like. Yeah, that's something, you know, we do a lot of here in the greenhouse, obviously, because we have a lot of plants, a lot of growing plants. And, uh, you know, while we do retail a lot of tropical foliage, we do grow a lot of annuals here. Uh, And so it's cool to see them go from sort of small plug stage all the way up to to full finished plant. But yeah, knowing those kind of how the growth looks and then knowing what's abnormal is something we do a lot of. Uh, And also just where you'll find the pests as well. Um, You know, one of the tough things, I know a lot of plant parents uh, struggle with mealybugs uh, in their houseplants. And part of the reason for that is is mealybugs seek out what's called cryptic growth or just just hiding spot is is really the best way of describing it. And so in a lot of plants, um, you know, philodendrons, pothos, things like that, they have a lot of very deep leaf sheaths and the plants are kind of viney and entangled. And you can have uh, pretty substantial populations of mealybugs, but they're really not readily visible until you are, are actually in the foliage peeling back each leaf one by one. And so that can be something where it's very tricky, where if you just see one mealybug in the edge of the leaf, uh, that's usually a good indication to then go closer and, and you may find that you have more in, in yeah. a full life cycle. Yeah. So kind of scouting maybe is kind of the first step in pest management. And then I guess when I usually... Uh, if I do find pests, uh, the next thing I tend to do is uh, removal of the pest, uh, if I can, by wiping or spraying down with water, and then also removal of plant parts that might have heavier infestations. 
Yeah, that's a really good uh, point that I, I extend to a lot of plant parents is um, while you do have kind of the traditional chemical controls available, uh, if you have, say, mealybugs or, or spider mites, um, a lot of the time what I recommend doing is uh, that sort of physical removal. And it's easier in the spring and summer months. I'll, what I'll do with some of my plants that I have at home, if they get mealybugs or something, I'll take them outside um, and I'll just kind of hit them with a, the, a jet of water from my hose. It might seem a little bit harsh, but usually they stand up to it pretty well. Um, you know, if it's if it's winter and it's a bit hard to, to hose something down outside, I'll just put it, bring it to my sink and just kind of wash off all the, the mealybugs that I see. It doesn't work for all pests, but again, it's just sort of removing maybe 40 to 60 percent of them. And and yeah, the it, it's a good point bringing up removing areas of high infestations because kind of like um, I was mentioning earlier about the cryptic growth or the, kind of where the mealybugs like to hide, a lot of times you'll find that that single, uh, you know, nodes, just leaves, leaf sheaths, uh, tendrils, whatever you want to call them, are really, that's where they're they're sort of concentrating, the, the pests are, that is. Um, and just simply trimming that out, that's, you know, oftentimes up to 80 to 90% of the population right there. And so instead of trying to spray and spray and, and do all these other things, you can just remove it there. Um, again, it depends, but those are just starting points where now you, the problem's quite a bit smaller and a quite a bit more manageable. Right. Yeah, so I, I love the idea of reducing the population. Uh, speaking of populations, uh, one thing I think that's very interesting and something you'd learn in an entomology class or like a horticulture 101, 102 type class is uh, identifying kind of like where in the life cycle the insect is because that can sometimes... Um, dictate what your treatment options are. Um, some insects are maybe more difficult to treat in adult stages or egg stages versus like as juveniles or nymphs. Can you kind of speak to that a little bit and how insect life cycles work? Yeah, you know, that that is a good point. And it is something where you can you can learn quite a bit about the life cycle of each individual pest. Um, and uh, yeah, a lot of the times, um, if you have multiple life stages present, um, you will have to kind of employ multiple strategies to deal with them. Kind of the classic example would be fungus gnats. Um, you know, you have the actual adults buzzing around uh, just above the soil, maybe in the foliage, and you can you can put up sticky traps, and that does you know significantly reduce their numbers. And you can spray them with whatever contact insecticide you like. But uh, you you typically will also have a larval stage actually in the soil, typically that that top inch or so. Uh, and that's something that's a little bit harder to treat, but, uh, you know, kind of to that point, uh, even if you control the adults, you may think, oh, it's, they're gone. I don't have anything on the sticky traps. Then, you know, a week or two later, they, they come back. So that's, you know, knowing that you may have multiple life stages present. Uh, another example would be uh, something like scale, where um, you, you just, uh, most of the time with like a, like a soft scale, you don't really notice them until your plant has quite a bit of them, you know, on it, typically like the, the woody stems and such. And uh, it's, it's interesting to note that most of the time the, the crawlers, sort of the, the mobile scales, will emerge from underneath the, the larger, kind of the brown one that you see. So while you might have killed or, or otherwise removed the, the mother scale, so to speak, you still, you still have crawlers emerging maybe later. And those are, can be significantly smaller and hard to spot. Yes. Yes, that's another important thing, uh, especially with mealybugs as well. People typically think of mealybugs as kind of a larger uh, insect, which they are. Um, but that sort of white fuzz, oftentimes that white fuzz will be uh, an egg sac, which can have anywhere between, I think it's something like 60 to 100 crawlers in it. So you might think, well, I don't see any adults. I've just got a few bits of cotton here or there. But it's really important to remove those. Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, you're just going to start the problem over again. 
Right. And then how how are insect life cycles um, impacted by, let's say, outside inputs such as temperature or even the fertility of the plant? Yeah, um, there's actually been a lot of studies on this, um, maybe with more annuals, but the same logic would apply to tropicals. Um, if you're fertilizing your plants quite a bit, if, you're, if you are um, giving them a lot of nitrogen, or really if they're just putting off a lot of fresh new growth, that's quite a bit more attractive to pests uh, than maybe just kind of dead of winter. You're not really doing much, you're just sort of watering them every now and then. Um, so if it's you know middle of summer and your plants are out in a nice hot balcony uh, or something and there's not a lot of wind, there's not a lot of, you know, predators to maybe eat them, uh, you can see the, the population expand quite a bit. Now, conversely, uh, certain pests like spider mites, you may see more of in the winter, even if you're not actively feeding, just because they, they tend to prefer sort of hot, dry conditions, which is sort of what most houses and homes turn into in Minnesota, because right. the heater's on and then your humidity drops when the heat goes up. Right. Yeah, so that's super interesting. Um, I think uh, learning about insects and things along my horticultural journey in college and just learning throughout my days in the greenhouse has been super fascinating, while at the same time frustrating, <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah, it's just like a dichotomy sort of thing, right? I want to know, like, what are the top pests that our plant parents, people that are growing and caring for plants indoors, what are the top pests they may be looking for? And then, like, a brief description of each. Yeah, you know, I, I think... Um I would say probably the number one in, in my experience, and I, obviously it varies depending on you know where you are, but I would say most plant parents struggle with mealybugs. They're sort of a pest that appears every now and then, um, but the more plants you have, the more likely it is that you'll get them. And they're they're kind of tough to control sort of for the, the reasons I mentioned earlier that they, they look for this kind of hidden spots. They, they don't like to be, you know, exposed to the, the elements, if you will. Uh, they're also quite a bit larger than a lot of other insect pests, which just means, um, you know, if you are using a contact insecticide, you may need to use slightly more of it. And then also, interestingly, the, the name mealybug, you, if once you see them, you'll kind of know why they're sort of waxy, mealy-looking, and that wax actually repels uh, water. So a lot of water-based um, insecticides, um, or even just trying to wash them off, uh, it just sort of gets repelled off of their, their mealy exterior. Um, you know, I think another issue is uh, people face is fungus gnats, but they're, they're, they're kind of an interesting pest in that they don't directly damage the plant. They're more of a, more of a nuisance pest than anything else. And they're, they're, again, one of those pests that once you have enough plants, you just sort of run into them. And uh, it's something you'll have to employ a few different strategies for. But those are kind of the two main ones, along with, I would say, spider mites are kind of the quintessential, the the, the, the ones that people are very afraid of. Afraid um, of, yeah, the top three. I would say, yeah, the, those are also probably, you know, more difficult to deal with. I mean, other pests that we're looking at, um, typically, you know, aphids can show up on that juicy new growth. More outdoors than indoors, yes. but they're pretty easy to take care of with uh, washing them off or a simple contact mm -hmm. insecticide, even something suitable for organic gardening. Um, and then, uh, you know, down a little bit lower on the list, maybe not as common because people don't have maybe as many mature woody plants in the home would be scale, like you mentioned, which are pretty common on uh, olive trees or citrus trees. And then white flies, which we don't see a lot um, as much anymore. I remember back in the old days, white flies were a big deal, but it seems like um, that that population or that threat has almost uh, 
diminished a bit, and I'm not sure exactly what that's attributed to. I would say the main thing we watch whiteflies on is poinsettias. Poinsettias, yep. Um, you know, yeah, they're, they're kind of the poinsettia pest. Um, you will actually see them a little bit on uh, our tropical hibiscus. Oh, right. Um, any, any, anywhere that sells tropical hibiscus, um, typically they, they kind of keep an eye out for those. Um, but they, they're not endemic to uh, Minnesota, well, hibiscus or whitefly. Uh, so a lot of the time, if the plants have a few whitefly on them and you just stick them outside, they the population doesn't really persist. Um, as far as indoor plants, you know, they, they may kind of show up, I, I suppose, or they, they can show up on indoor tropical plants. But like you said, it, it's just not something that really happens mm-hmm. uh, much, you know, commonly. Uh, I guess we should mention thrips, too. Thrips have become a bigger deal uh, in the past several years when I started growing plants. Oh, well, I don't know. 18, year, 18 years ago, I, I discovered thrips in the greenhouse on potato vine. And at the time... You know, uh, my coworkers really hadn't dealt with thrips as a problem. Um, we really were mostly dealing with aphids and things that are a bit easier to knock down. Um, but thrips have really been on the scene, and we've had some different species of thrips coming in on tropical plants. Uh, but, you know, the one you maybe see the most is the western flower thrip. Um, that one is a little bit tough, too. And uh, with some insects, you're really going to see the feeding damage on the leaves of the plant, so it can affect the appearance and the performance of the plant. With others, you may not notice it, but I would say with thrips and spider mites, uh, the feeding damage is very evident. Could you tell us a little bit about what that looks like and why it looks like that, kind of based on like their mouth parts or feeding habits? Yeah, thrips are interesting because, as you said, it it wasn't something people were really aware of. I mean, it was, but again, not to that great of an extent. But then interestingly, because uh, with the rise in houseplants, um, there's a species of thrip called the echinothrip, which is uh, very really attracted to foliage so you you'll actually see that on tropicals uh, more frequently than you know you might expect and what's interesting about thrips and this is sort of universal to, to all of the the plant feeding thrips is they there's sort of a the way they feed is they they essentially they, they rasp or they just sort of drag their mouth parts and, and scrape up the uh, just damage the the surface of the plant and then after it breaks down a little bit from their saliva they just sort of suck it up. So it's something where they, they scrape the surface of the plant and it, it um, sort of presents as like a little bit of a, it can be like graying or bronzing. And again, when you only have one or two, it's not as evident, but they can reproduce pretty quickly. And so all of a sudden you may see some fading on your leaves, typically towards the, the edges, you know, the, the margins. Um, and that's, again, just indicative of the, what's happening to the plant is essentially it's being just scraped repeatedly. And then it, the, the damaged tissues are being broken down by the, the thrip saliva. So it's kind of like eating an artichoke. Very similar, actually. (laughs) (laughs) You just scrape it with your teeth. And then eventually, once it gives up, you can digest it a little bit easier, yes. Right, right. Okay. Yes, with the, you know, your saliva and, you know, all the stuff that goes on with digestion. Fascinating. So then spider mites. Tell us a little bit about how they are feeding in the plant and what that looks like. Yeah, spider mites, I think a lot of plant parents probably know them and are, are, they're sort of, there's a mystique around them, but they're actually pretty simple. Um, and in a home situation, not 
they, you know, there's methods to control them, but kind of the starting point for them is they feed by, they, obviously it's their mite, so they're quite small. They are visible. So if they're a, a mite, they're not exactly an insect, is that correct? Oh, that's correct, yes. <laughs> um, yes, so because they're mites, they're they're technically a cari and sort of in the family of like spiders and ticks and such. Yeah. Um, that means certain insecticides aren't as effective on them. Right. Uh, but uh, for the most part, you can sort of treat them as an insect. Right. I mean, uh, we'll lump them purposes. in. Yeah, yes. Definitely. Um, but they, they, yeah, they're, so they're uh, a cari and they, what they'll do is they will insert their mouth parts into individual cells on a plant because they're just that small. Um, and they will suck out the contents of the cell and the cell necresses. And then you just end up with this very small uh, yellowish pinprick. Yeah. Uh, and eventually it'll kind of bleach to like a, like a tan color. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it's hard to see an individual dead cell on a plant, but because the mites are pretty prolific, which you'll find is once there's a lot of dead cells, it starts to be this sort of yellowish speckling. And then over time, yeah, like stippling, stippling, you can say, you know, yeah. I, I kind of liken it to a sunburn. A lot of times I'll see palms that have mm, um, yeah. had spider mites for a while and typically towards the edges of the fronds mm-hmm. the, the cells have completely collapsed and it's just kind of like it looks like it's been burned but it's yeah you know. that's true on the papery fronds of, yeah um of a palm right yeah it's going to definitely depend on the leaf thickness yeah I, I guess like in my experience you see spider mites a lot on ivy plants and mm-hmm. it, you can just see the stippling it's just you know you know from a mile away other times too, uh, when they feed on kind of plants with a thicker, um, thicker skin, like I like to think of um, ficus danielle is a good example of that. Uh, it'll be just sort of a more, um, I, I, I guess I want to say like a, a very soft mottled um, mm-hmm. yellowing. So that's where it can be a little bit tricky to identify that it is spider mites. One of the nice things about them is they are one of the few mites um, that are visible to the naked eye. Um, they're obviously more difficult to see than a mealybug or a thrip, but typically what you'll see is um, just a small reddish dot or a number of them uh, moving along the, the leaves. They can be, you know, they can be green. They can sometimes be sort of a mustard color. It, it, it varies, but typically it's sort of a red to an orange yeah. color. I, I know some plant parents have um, uh, loops, you know, little magnifying glasses, which is great because it, you know, helps kind of spread the awareness of IPM and just spread people's awareness of what pests they have. Right. Um, and typically under a loop or, a, you know, hand lens, you'll see a pair of uh, dots on kind of the lower abdomen on either side of its body. Mm-hmm. Their, their, their full name, or one of their common names is two spotted spider mites. Um, there's, a, there's a number of spider mites, but that's sort of the most common one. So if you see mites and you're able to identify that they have two spots on either side of their, their abdomen, then that's a pretty good indication that that's what that species is. Yeah, perfect. So, I mean, kind of like understanding what the insects look like, what their feeding habits are, a little bit about life cycle. Kind of all this yummy, juicy, sciencey stuff is really helpful in identifying and then forging a path for how to treat or eliminate the pest. So I, I think we should just chat about some of the options for effectively reducing pest populations in the home or even eliminating pest populations in the home. I think total elimination can sometimes be a lofty goal, but, uh, you know, everyone kind of has a different standard or uh, viewpoint or desire for a certain aesthetic with their plants. And obviously we don't want to let insect populations get out of control so that you see uh, plant damage and ultimately plant demise. But if we kind of go through our main uh, culprits of pest infestations in the home, like tell us a little bit about what the best or most effective method for controlling that pest is. I think 
And I'm thinking we should start with fungus gnats. Yeah, fungus gnats are, uh, they're, they're prolific and they're very, uh, they're irritating. Um, and yeah, they, they're definitely the pest that requires sort of a multi-layered approach. Um, and kind of like I mentioned earlier, you have the adults, which are obviously visible and look like gnats, and then you have the larvae, which will be in the well, soil. Well, like, uh, like fruit flies. Fruit flies, yeah. That'd they, be, yeah. Typically when people come in with fungus gnats and they're not sure what they have, they'll describe them as fruit flies. Right. Um, and yeah, you know, for the adults, it, it's pretty simple. Uh, the yellow sticky cards do a great job of taking care of uh, the adults. Again. And so explain to us how the yellow sticky cards actually work. Yeah, so... Uh, Typically, insects have an attraction to just brighter colors in general, um, yellow being kind of the, the one that most of these pest insects are attracted to. Um, so a yellow sticky guard is just literally a piece of paper or plastic usually that's coated in a very thick adhesive on both sides. And you can put that towards the soil of the plant, which is where you know, the fungus gnats will usually be hanging out. Um, and just having that there, eventually they'll kind of be bound to sort of head over and check it out. And then at, what point, at which point they get stuck to it, just like flypaper. Yeah. Um, and then that takes care of them, you know. The adults. Pests, the adults, if you yeah. will. Um, you know, also you can use um, a contact spray just in the lower leaves. A lot of times um, you'll see, you can kind of shake the plant a bit and you'll see them fly up to the to the sort of middle of the foliage and spray them that way. But really the sticky cards do a great job of taking care of them. Uh, but the tough thing is that they, they sort of reproduce um, in the soil, kind of the top inches of soil, in where kind of the, the peat moss, which is usually the, the media plants will be grown in, uh, is breaking down and there's, well, there's a fungus growing on them. Uh, so then that's where the, the fungus gnats actually feed. That's what they're feeding on um, and then where their their uh, larval stages are eventually. So the adults will lay eggs in the yes. top inches of the soil? Yep. yep. Eggs will hatch, the, the larva will feed on uh, the, the fungus and then eventually transition to being adults and then you'll see them flying around to, okay. to other plants. And so the way that you kind of, you can handle that, uh, you know, the, the, the heart of the problem, which is the, the fungus, is you can um, kind of scoop out the top inch of soil uh, of your plants. A lot of times you'll see fungus gnats on really old or kind of uh, just worn out soil, so to speak. Um, you know, uh, and, uh, and most of that fungus is really just toward the top. They don't lay their eggs particularly deep. So by scooping out the top inches of soil, you're doing a couple things. One, you're removing pretty much most of the population in terms of eggs uh, mm -hmm. and juveniles, and you're removing a lot of that fungus. Again, what's what's tough is the, the next layer of soil you lay down is, is eventually going to break down as well, and you have just living things, and, and you'll have fungus again at some point. Uh, but that's just a good way to kind of reset things. Another thing people will do, uh, and that I, I am a big fan of as well, is like a thin layer of sand over the top of the soil. Um, that just makes it quite a bit harder for the gnats to actually emerge from the soil because they've then got to sort of fight their way out of those all those little rocks, if right. you will. Um, it it's, can, be, can be a bit uh, tricky with watering. You kind of have to scoop this, the sand to the side to get the water uh, maybe into the soil sometimes. Sometimes it washes away. But that, I just know that sand, um, a lot of people have really sworn by, is a good way to just okay. keep the numbers down. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely a low chemical input. Both are really low chemical input ways to control a really annoying pest. Exactly. And that's, again, kind of the, the premise of IPM is that uh, the more you know, the more you can um, implement better strategies to control you know, the pests that you're trying to control. Yeah. And what if you're just at your wit's end, you've tried all of that, and you still can't get them under control? Yeah, you know, there's um, there's a few chemical options. I, I, I would say you can uh, typically something like eight. We have an indoor uh, eight product that'll work for that. It's just kind of a basic pyrethrin. 
Um, that'll, it's quite safe, it works pretty well. Um, you can try misting the top inches of soil. You may see some efficacy from it, but it may be one of those things where you just have to mist the soil every now and then, um, and then just kind of monitor their population that way. So it's kind of, I guess the technical term, I don't know if it's technical or not, but that'd be kind of considered a sprench. A sprench in a way, yes, yes. <laughs> um, and, th and that brings up another good point is that uh, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of people will spray or will swear by neem oil uh, and there's actually an extract of neem oil called um, as a as a direct and is kind of the active ingredient of neem oil if you will uh, and that is actually something that's labeled for a drench onto I believe house plants uh, and annuals outdoors that would have some kind of a, a little bit of an effect of controlling the um, the, the eggs and the larvae that are in the soil. I haven't seen a lot of people use that, so I can't speak to how well it works in practice, but I know that it, that is an option. It's that, labeled for that. So if you're going to use a product that is packaged in a spray bottle more as a drench or a sprench, do you have to do anything to the concentration or just apply as is? Just apply as is. Okay. You know, you're still fundamentally doing the same thing, which is trying to find the insect um, and apply a contact uh, insecticide that's absorbed through the, the insect's, um, you know, exoskeleton cuticle, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, keep the, the dilution and everything the same. There's, there's kind of two main... Um, formulations you'll find pesticides in the the ready to use spray which we you know we have quite a few of and that's just well ready to use and then there'll also be um concentrates which are well what they sound like where they have to be mixed with water and then sprayed uh typically with your own um applicator device or something right uh, so the label but the label will say yeah definitely all right so uh good advice on fungus gnats love it let's talk about Spider mites. Recommendations for spider medic infestations. Yeah, spider mites. Um, yeah, typically you do just kind of have to start with a chemical control on them. Um, you can wash them off. Doesn't work super well. Um, there are a few options uh, that work for spider mites. Um, the main thing is I wouldn't really recommend a, a eight or any kind of pyrethroid. Um, they, they may be labeled for spider mites, but they're not as effective. Um, I Personally, I'll use um, insecticidal soap. Uh, we have a product called Insecticidal Super Soap, which is two products in one. It's both the soap and then a, a, an organic miticide. That's really good for spider mites, but, um, well, it's actually bad for them, I suppose. <laughs> but um, I'll use the Insecticidal Super Soap quite a bit, but just the regular insecticidal soap that we sell in the smaller pump bottles. Yeah. Uh, basically what that is is that's it, it, it's a sort of a soap, but um, and it has kind of a soap odor and it's pretty safe um, but what it does is it kind of dries them out and it's really effective on spider mites I've found another kind of in that same category it would be uh, horticultural oil so what that is is that's basically like a paraffin wax so almost like candles that's dissolved in a carrier and when you spray that onto the plant it covers the the insect or in this case the mite uh, and prevents them from breathing because these pests will breathe actually through holes in their body holes called spiracles spiracles yes Love it. I'm proud of you. <laughs> um, and so those are kind of my two go-tos, um, you know, uh, would be the soap and the oil. Uh, if you have it on hand, you can give uh, like eight or pyrethrins a try. Um, it kind of depends on the plant, what the what the product is labeled for. But those are really my two go-tos. And I, I really like the super soap because it's got both the, the miticide and the soap kind of combined together. Okay, quickly, because they're pretty easy to treat. Would you use the horticultural oil or the insecticidal soap on aphids? Aphids, um, I would say I would still use oil. Oil tends to be a little bit more, like, does best on everything, if you will. Okay. I guess I, li I like the, the soap maybe a little bit more for uh, mites, but the, the oil is great on, on you know, 
pretty good on everything, I would okay, say. Okay, so aphids, you're usually going to find those like on the growing tips where yes. where the plant is actively growing because they have piercing, sucking mouth parts and they're just sucking out all those juicy sugars, right? Yes, yes. You'll typically see them. They're more of an annual pest, but you will see them uh, on Schifflera. I've seen them uh, kind of on the new little umbrellas sort of emerging from the, the top of the plant. I've seen them every now and then on uh, succulents. Whenever uh, you oh, get yeah. like some flowers on a succulent, the little small ones, you'll, you'll see aphids on there because there's quite a bit of, of as Jesse was saying, that juicy sugar water going up there. And aphids reproduce pretty quickly. Um, so that's kind of why they're they're uh, very, uh, very hungry, if you will. So aphids, as they are uh, sucking out all that juicy sap, they also, you know, as kind of a byproduct of that, there's an excrement, if you will. So what happens there? It's kind of one of the first things people see uh, with an aphid infestation. Yeah, so that's this is actually a really good point you bring up because it's it's seen quite a bit with aphids, but scale is it's actually probably the first right. way I find it on scale. Yeah. But basically, most of these piercing, sucking insects, if you want to kind of classify them by how they feed, uh, they'll secrete something called uh, honeydew, which is just a, a, a very sticky, almost like a it's a translucent, just kind of a clear liquid, but it's about the consistency of uh, maple syrup. So it's, it's very, like how they poop basically yes they, okay they got they that out of the ingest way. quite a bit uh <laughs> and they can't digest all of it and so um so yeah uh, uh, aphids will put off quite a bit of honeydew uh, along with mealybugs to a certain extent uh and scale and with mealybugs and aphids you can typically spot them pretty easily but with scale because they're against the kind of they're uh, sort of frequently a very brown color against brown um bark um, if you see kind of drops of what appears to be, it looks like sap um, on your plants, take a close look for, for scale, because typically the scale is almost invisible, but then you'll see the, the honeydew that they're secreting. Um, and yeah, that's, that's something, you know, if I see that, I know that there's a pretty established population of whatever pest it is. Um, so you don't see it quite so much with mealybugs. They, they do secrete it, but just not to a very substantial degree. And usually you'll notice the, the mealybug before that. Yeah, and it's interesting too, like... You know, I can sometimes see honeydew, you know, just out of the corner of my eye. And if I see it on a leaf, usually I fo- my eye will follow the leaf, you know, directly to the node, up the stem, and that's where you find exactly. the culprit. Yes. I, for me, when I see honeydew on like a tree or something, maybe we get some new citrus in, um, I, I just kind of follow gravity um, and just kind of keep in mind that it's a very viscous substance. And, and always, I just I can trace it back to typically within a couple inches, there's a, a good population of um, scale at that point. Exactly. And then sometimes um, on the honeydew, because it is so sugary, um, there'll be kind of a blackish brown mold on the top so that's another way to identify it yep that's something you'll see a lot on magnolia too um when they just get covered in magnolia scale it's kind of a perennial thing but you'll see people will say it's got this black soot all over it right Um, and it's not actually soot it's a mold sooty mold sooty mold even sooty mold what's called there it's coming um and um They'll think that it's the the you know some sort of disease, but really what it is is just a mold growing on honeydew, which is being produced by a pest. So you can again with IPM, you sort of trace back to where did this sort of begin and what's what do we really want to be treating here? Right, but we're not worried really about the honeydew or the sooty mold that can just simply be wiped off. Yeah, we're worried about the actual pest that's the pest secreting. Itself, right. Yes. All right. So we talked about fungus gnats, spider mites. Do we talk about mealybugs? Yeah, you know, I, I really do wish I had better <laughs> recommendations for, for kind of the home uh, plant parent of how to deal with, with pernicious mealybugs. 
Um, I'll say that, uh, again, washing them off, kind of trimming off really the infested parts of the plant uh, is a really a good start to get, you know, 60% of your population out of the way. Um, there are some chemical options, you know, uh, eight, uh, pyrethrins will work. Uh, the insecticidal soap that I mentioned earlier, that will work on them. Horticultural oil ha has been shown to do pretty well against them as well. Um, the tough thing, again, is that they have kind of that hydrophobic coating, so when you spray them, uh, or if they only get contacted by a little bit of the, the compound, they may not um, really be affected by it. Right, but um, with uh, insecticidal soap, it's kind of like the way soap works with water. Water, right? yeah. It breaks the... Breaks down their cuticle, yeah. Yeah, it breaks it, so then it goes into the body and dries them out yeah yeah i i tend to like using insecticidal soap if i'm dealing with just a few um with just a few mealybugs um i'll say you know sometimes uh and frequently it's it's pothos golden pothos um it, it's not really a winning battle uh, if it's a very leafy um you know kind of ivy like plant you can treat as much as you want but sometimes you do just kind of have to throw in the towel on them yeah you know sometimes on on, on kind of easier to treat plants like um i, I was dealing with some ficus audrey a number of years back that had quite a few uh, mealybugs underneath each of the leaves and that was a plant where i started with just hosing them all off and just kind of laying the plant on its side and just so I could easily spray under each leaf. Right. And then it was a number of successive applications of insecticidal soap mm -hmm. and that eventually got them under control. Um, you know, so you kind of have to take if you the architecture, if you will, of the plant into consideration if you're really going to try and fight them for, for a while. Right. The good news is um, they don't, while they do feed on the plant in the same way that aphids do they they pierce the plant um, and, and you know suck out its juices they're not particularly damaging uh, in the way that maybe spider mites are right um, so if you notice one or two mealybugs on you know one of your plants but you don't want to get rid of it uh, you can just sort of keep wiping them off uh, over time if you want to do a really low effort way of controlling them but also keeping the plant around yeah so one thing I've I've noticed myself uh, with plants in the house and mealybugs is you know you could have purchased a plant um, six months ago and then all of a you know you think you've you look at it every time you water you maybe rinse the leaves you know you're really looking at your plants and then all of a sudden there's this mealybug like where did it come from I feel like these mealybugs have some kind of a strategy where they kind of like lie in wait like what is that about you know I, I have really yet to figure that out because I've experienced that uh, with plants of my own I've, I brought home a Hoya a while back and I, I must have had that thing for six or so months and it looked fine and I looked at it every day and then all of a sudden I just found mealybugs on it and it's it's one of those things they have a very long life cycle um, again, they, they sort of like to hide, if you will. And there's just, it, it's, I don't want to say inexplicable, but it is odd that you can bring <laughs> home a plant uh, and, and look at it every day for, in my case, six months, and, and there's no mealybugs, and then you come home one day and they're there. It's just, I guess I just got to chalk it up to there anywhere where, you know, the light isn't. So underneath leaves, in leaf sheaths. Uh, and because, again, they reproduce very slowly, especially right. indoors where the plant isn't growing quite so much. Again, if the plant was, was growing more and you were fertilizing pretty constantly, they might have more of a chance to, to reproduce quickly. But again, indoors, a lot of our plants just kind of go dormant, um, especially in you know, the fall, winter months. So um, I, I think it just comes down to there may be just simply one or two just hidden in a crevice somewhere and they're just not doing all that much. Right. And eventually they, they get to a point where you notice. Right. And then uh, one thing I've read about before is, you know, mealybugs are pretty, well, they their larvae are crawlers, so they're able to transport themselves you know from leaf to leaf maybe plant to plant if they're touching yes but then 
there are, as adults, maybe, maybe I have this backwards, at some point in the life stage, or maybe, yeah, maybe at some point in the life stage or sometime in hatching, some of them are all of a sudden born with wings, and then they can fly, which is very confusing. Like, yes. how do you just be born with wings when your species usually doesn't have wings? Yeah, so, so to that point, um, the males, which are very, very difficult to find, um, will always have wings. Um, oh, they, oh, the males always, always have wings, yes. Okay. They, they actually look uh, quite a bit like a fungus gnat or even a white fly, depending on the species. But yeah, the males, which are very difficult to find, uh, live for about two to three days, have no mouth parts, and, and just exist to, to mate. Um, and so they're <laughs> tough to, to spot because they just don't exist for that long. Yeah. Um, and they don't do very much feeding. But to your point, you know, one thing about... Uh, uh, about mealybugs is you probably, if you've ever dealt with them, you've noticed there's that very, there's that sort of cottony mass that's not part of the mealybug. Right. And that's usually the, the ovisac, the egg sac. And that's something that's, because it's so light and it's kind of just sticking off the plant, I've seen it get brushed onto, you know, like clothes or, right. you know, or some, or just the back of your hand or something. And you got to think that's contains quite a number of very mobile or soon to be very mobile mealybugs. Right. So if you are kind of going from plant to plant and you get something like that on your sleeve, on your glove, even on the edge of, you know, some pruners or something, that is a way that they can move around. True. Um, okay. Yeah. yeah. In the case of, now, aphids, on the other hand, will actually kind of go into that winged form, kind of like you're talking about, which oh, is most okay. aphids you typically see do not have wings and just kind of skitter oh. around the plant. Right. But the, uh, every, kind of, when they, populations grow to a certain point, they start kind of creating these winged forms so they can go and, and find other sources of food. Right, because they're like eating themselves out of house and home. If, if you will, yes. All right, so then what's with aphids? Um, I feel like they can switch uh, between male and female. Yes, uh, that's part of kind of a sort of a deeper subject um, of, of insect reproduction. But kind of the, the, the quick answer is, um, yes, they can produce males when they want to, but they actually reproduce, in a sense, by, by cloning themselves, if you will. Yeah. They, they give birth without... Um, you know, so it's a type of asexual reproduction. Asexual reproduction, yes, uh, and they can do it very quickly as well. In the in the summer months, they are some of the fastest reproducing pests that we that we encounter. So again, if you have say some geraniums or petunias outside uh, and you're hitting with bloom booster. Uh, you know, religiously, and they're getting a lot of good water and sun, you may find that the aphids go from a couple to a lot, seemingly overnight. And part of that is because um, they can re reproduce asexually, and then they, they'll sometimes produce males, uh, but, you know, they don't need them, if you will. Huh. I think they're on to something. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> we need you males. <laughs> I don't know. It's fascinating. I love bug science, entomology, all that stuff. John, any... Any other advice or things you think our listeners need to know about integrated pest management or just general practices for treating pests indoors? You know, I, I think that um, really one of the things we talk about in IPM uh, is thresholds. Uh, basically, okay. the, the point at which you want to, you know, really take action to control a pest. Uh, and for me, um, you know, I have I have some plants in my home, and I, I know one or two of them I think have mealybugs. Uh, I, I keep kind of keep an eye on them, but I, I don't really get it, let it get to me all that much because the plant is is quite healthy. 
Um, and I can, you know, spend time going in with the, the cotton swabs and rubbing alcohol, removing them. Uh, but I, I just sort of don't let it bother me because most of these plants in the wild deal with things like this. Right. Uh, and the actual damage that the pest is causing is is negligible, you know, compared to how am I doing for watering? Did I over fertilize? Do I have good soil? You know, it kind of in the, in the continuum of things that are really going to affect the plant, the pest is actually pretty low. Now, the exception to that is things like spider mites. Um, usually mites are a little bit more... Uh, unsafe, if you will, to plants. But even things like thrips, I, I don't mind so much on my house plants. Again, if I see a lot of foliar damage, then I'll kind of start taking care of them. But it's something where they, in the wild, they've, they've kind of, for lack of a better term, just grown up together having pests and they just sort of deal with them in their own way um, and just don't let it get to them all that much. So it's like a stinky 12-year-old who like doesn't brush their teeth? Exactly. I, that would be probably one of the best analogies I've heard for plants and pests. Right. I guess the only thing that I worry about indoors is you don't have um, any other competition from any kind of a predatory insect. You don't have wind, rain and things that kind of help yes. remove and and shift things around. So that is kind of the one thing I, I worry about. But uh, speaking to thresholds, that is really important because... You know, um, instead of blasting everything when you see just one with something really heavy duty that could be harmful or dangerous. Um, yeah, you kind of wait and see. And at what point, what is your threshold and what can you what will you tolerate and what won't you tolerate? Yeah. And that's kind of up to the individual. Um, and do you think that it's a, a battle that you can win? You know, right. like I said, with, with a very leafy pothos that's covered in, in mealybugs, uh, you know, if, if you want to go to the trouble of, of cleaning it out, you certainly can. Uh, but sometimes it's better just to get another pothos. Uh, yeah, just they're pretty. Uh, they're pretty readily available. Pretty, pretty common these days. Pretty yes. common these days. So true. Well, thank you, John. It has been such a delight talking pests IPM with you today. I love nerding out on all this stuff. I suppose we shouldn't call it nerding out because it's just being regular. In the case of you and me. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, it was lovely. Thank yeah, you so thank you much. For having me. And I, I feel like I should give out your direct line so people can just contact you at any moment. Yeah, uh, John at Tonkadale.com for most bug questions. Um, you know, anything I don't know, I can. I have people who are much smarter than I am kind of take a look at. Uh, and and you know, it's like anything. If if you love learning, it's just it's always fun dealing with new stuff. So. Um, yeah, I'll try to answer whatever questions you might have. Oh, thanks, John. I didn't think you were really going to do it. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's potentially broadcast nationwide. Yeah, I'll see what I can do. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Well, we will link uh, all of the products that we talked about in the show notes and on our blog. So you can uh, take a look at some of what we're talking about. With that, uh, we'll see you next time on Your Greenhouse Home, the podcast. That's it for this week's episode of Your Greenhouse Home, the podcast. I am your host, Jesse. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you at Tonkadale.